When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hi. Welcome to High Theory. In this podcast, we get high on the substance of theory. I'm Kim Adams. And I'm Sharonik Boshu. We are two tired academics trying to save critique from itself. Welcome to High Theory. Today we are talking about the hyperlocal with Nicholas Burns. Nicholas, would you mind introducing yourself? I am Nicholas Burns. I teach at NYU at the School of Continuing and Professional Studies. I have published on many aspects of theory and literary history. I published in 2010, Theory After Theory, an intellectual history of literary theory from 1950 to the early 21st century from Broadview, which is widely used as a, a textbook in intro to theory classes. And uh, I have done a lot of work on Australian literature and on Latin American literature and world literature in general. And in 2019, I published a book with Lexington called The Hyperlocal in 18th and 19th Century Literary Space. Brilliant. And, you know, that's the book that we are going to talk about mainly today. But thank you so much, Nicholas, for coming to High Theory and talking to us. Thank you. What the heck is the hyperlocal? The hyperlocal, that term originated in journalism in the early 1990s to designate news that was tethered to a very local area. So not just a city or a state but a county, a town that was very specific. And the interesting thing about that is the more specific it got in the orientation of place, the more generic in content it became. And so you could look at hyperlocal news from a Chicago area suburb, from a Boston area suburb, from a Seattle area suburb, And they were kind of saying the same thing. And so the hyperlocal appealed to me as a concept that was very place specific, but did not actually say that any specific place had concrete organic content. So there is no room in the hyperlocal for nationalism, for essentialism, for anything organic. It is 
transferable and elastic while also remaining very place-specific and not simply a subset of the universal. So the hyperlocal is ramifying the regional and taking out that primordial essentialism without simply becoming a subset of the universal. So you're talking about the origins of the hyperlocal as a modality in journalism, and I'm wondering how you read its relationship to kind of other broad movements in American journalism, uh, new journalism, and you know other kinds of investigative narrative journalism. I think it is an aspect of, in the 1960s, there were the New York Times, there were the three networks, there was ABC, NBC, CBS, Walter Cronkite spoke with the word of God, and the transparency of journalism was unquestioned. Now, there are a million, there are a million plateau, as Deleuze and Guattari would say, there are a million sources of, of news, and the idea of objective journalism or journalism that is simply reportage is been problematized. And even though hyperlocal news is hardly performative in its iteration of the truth, I right. think it is part of that divergence from the one Promethean, Walter Cronkite-esque norm of reportage that American journalism had in the late 1960s. How do we use the hyperlocal? And really kind of hoping to get into the methodolo- methodology in your book. Sure. Yeah. Uh, the hyperlocal particularly appealed to me as a way of talking about the 18th and early 19th centuries. And despite the title, which I think the subtitle of the publishers, uh, my book does not go much further than 1850. The last significant text, uh, latest significant text in it is uh, Emerson's poem, Monadnock, which is uh, in the mid 1840s and Dickens' novel, Barnaby Rudge, also the uh, early to mid 1840s. But it appealed to me as a way of talking about middle modernity. So if you, what we used to call the Renaissance, the scholars like to talk about the early modern now, the time of Shakespeare and Montaigne and so on. And if we think about the 20th century as the late modern, as something equivalent to late capitalism, the 18th and early 19th centuries are a kind of middle modernity. And of course, they are a time which, where we see the emergence of capitalism. And what struck me, I often teach Daniel Defoe's novel, Roxana. I do a two-semester survey of the 18th and 19th century British novels. Uh, I start mm-hmm. with Defoe. Uh, I can't do Robinson Crusoe because the courses on empire and colonialism have rightly acclaimed that book. So I do Defoe's Roxana instead, although maybe after the pandemic, I'll do Journal of the Plague here. But mm-hmm. Roxana has this wonderful line in it. Sir Robert Clayton, who's a real-life figure, gives this advice to Roxana, who's kind of an entrepreneurial sex worker. And he tells her, an estate is a pond, but a trade is a spring. And so an estate like a pond is there, but it doesn't produce value. A trade is like a spring. It is ever resourceful. And that is a paradigmatic of capitalism and its ability to proliferate and reproduce itself. And I thought, well, what about the estate is a pond part of that simile? And what about residual forms in the age of capitalism? And Mm. so the second chapter of the book 
is the pond, is on the uh, pond as a trope in uh, 18th and 19th century literature. And I look at ponds and how they are opposed to lakes in particularly the 18th century novel, but also in poetry. And lakes, of course, the lake poets, Wordsworth, they are objects of desire. They are objects of the touristic gaze. Ponds are either very functional, they're used mm -hmm. to farm carp, or they are very decorative. They're used to adorn aristocrats' estate. And in that way, they are beneath notice and beneath the capitalist gaze, and in a weird way, somewhat subversive of the capitalist gaze. So right. that was the core, that was the donee. And then I branched out, the uh, chapter that precedes it is on science and on the scientific particle. And this, the scientific particle, as theorized by uh, the people coming out of the Royal Society in the late 17th century, is something, it is very specific. It is a particle. It is not a universal. But it obviously doesn't have a place. It doesn't have organic identity. And so it is like the pond in being very specific, but again, not essential and not at all the object of desire. So from there, I'm not going to go through the entire book uh, a piece by piece, but it ramifies from there and goes out into various movements, including high romanticism and ends up in the uh, 1840s with uh, Dickens and Emerson and the early Anglo-Indian poet Henry DeRosio, who worked in Calcutta in the early 19th century. And those are the concluding figures of the book. Let me take you to the other end of the spectrum, because mm -hmm. we that's a fascinating examination of the pond as trope. And, but I'm wondering, you've worked so extensively in Australian literature, mm -hmm. and what exactly is the overlap between your interest in the hyperlocal and mm -hmm. your interest in Australia as a place and as a trope in literary formation? Well, one of the things that occurs in the 18th century is what David Fawcett, F-A-U-S-E-T-T, -T, who's a very interesting scholar of kind of French utopian literature in the 18th century, he called the closing of the global circle. In other words, when every part of the globe was discovered by Europeans, of course, the indigenous peoples of Australia, as Bruce Pascoe has recently argued, knew very well uh, where they were and their own country. But the discovery of the entire globe within the European gaze enabled ideas of the global, but they also enabled an idea of transferability and elasticity and that an individual signifier could play in many places. And so in the Pond chapter, for instance, I look at the, uh, the idea of the black swan which is a bird that is very specific to Australia. And when black swans begin to appear in poems about ponds, that indicates the intrusion of Australian fauna into the rest of the world. So with regard to Australia, I'm not Australian. I am not related to any Australians. I have no organic connection to Australia at all. I became interested in it in, uh, when I was in my early 20s at Columbia University. I have since been to Australia many times. But I'm interested in Australia as a kind of limit situation of the global. That's a fascinating bridging between the tropic intensity of the pond as this kind of closed up small figure and Australia as the antipodes and uh, yes of the world absolutely yeah speaking of the world my last question how will the hyperlocal save the world <laughs> you know I was very aware 
that I was both descri describing and advocating for the hyperlocal in my book. And I was a bit uncomfortable with that because the entire point of the hyperlocal is it's supposed to be around advocacy. But I do think I started to think of the book in uh, 2014. So before Brexit, before Trump, and so on. But the the straw man, the opponent of the hyperlocal, I, I call the subsidiary. And right. that is a term taken from EU discourse where subsidiarity is the right of the polities into the in the EU to describe things, to decide things locally if they so wish. And the subsidiary is the opponent of the hyperlocal because it is that traditional, organic, regional, largely right-wing, local, colory thing. And so in the wake of Brexit and Trump and the rise of right-wing nationalism, the hyperlocal began to stand in my mind for something that is liberating because it is transferable and because we aren't fixed to it. I don't want to claim for it, it is salvific because, of course, the hyperlocal, as I just mentioned, is contingent on a globality which proceeds from imperialism and European colonialism and so on. But I do think the transferability of the hyperlocal can help resistance and liberation. And I have a chapter in the middle of the book on Methodism and on the uh, Methodist uh, uh, movement in the late 18th century. And I talk about how African diaspora Methodist preachers uh, took a very English European discourse and transferred it by hyperlocal means to serve African diaspora populations in Canada and in Sierra Leone and worldwide. So. I don't think it will save the world, but I think it can liberate and it can disenthrall us from an idea of the regional that even if at times it situationally seems to help the left wing, I think always rhetorically bolsters that rhetoric of organic belonging that the right has used so exploitatively in the past uh, seven or eight years. Well, you know, even if it's not salvific, it's, let's say, emancipated in contingent. Yes, cases. thank you. That is very much what I am trying for, is that emancipatory quality. Uh, that's You put it very well. No, thank you very much. Thank you so much for uh, coming to High Theory and talking about the hyperlocal. Nicholas, thank, thank you so much. Thank you very much, Sarah. Good to talk to you. And thank you for listening to High Theory. If you like our podcast, please review and subscribe on Spotify, iTunes, Patreon, or wherever you get your podcast fix. Sharonik Bosu manages our social media presence. Owen Quinn composes our theme music, and Kim Adams and Sharonik Bosu edit our audio. You can also find us at hightheory.net. We hope you have a highly theoretical day.